We are continuing in this book of Romans because it is such a wonderful summary of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful summary because when we look at it, what we see is we see all the different major themes of Scripture touched on, and we learn specifically what is the gospel, what is the good news. Uh, We learn specifically that that God saves a broken world through Jesus Christ. We learn who it's for. We learn that it's for us. It's for all people because we all desperately need that salvation. And finally, what we've been learning, especially as we've been going through these last several chapters, is how does that gospel then shape our lives? And so again, we're going to be picking up on that theme as we look at Romans 12, but I think it's only right that before we dive into Scripture, we take a moment to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have brought us together as a family of faith. That you brought us here so that we might learn. So that we might learn first and foremost who you are, but then also learn what it means to follow you. And so as we come once more before your word, Lord, we ask that you would indeed teach us. Give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, one of the things that uh, really surprised me about becoming a parent is how you have to teach kids to do everything. Like everything. Like I knew that I'd have to teach my kids like how to ride a bike without training wheels. I knew that I would probably have to teach them how to put their clothes on. I'd have to teach them how to read and help them with their homework. But when, but when I, we were first gifted with a child, I was like, this thing literally doesn't know how to do anything at all. Like they don't know how to like go to the bathroom properly. They don't know how to eat. They don't even know how to sleep. I mean, I was introduced to this whole corpus of literature called sleep training. I was like, really? You don't know how to sleep? Like, you get tired, close your eyes, and that's it, right? Why is this hard? And yet, that's the truth. With with children, you have to teach them everything. It's fascinating how God built us as human beings where we, we enter into this world helpless. There's not a single thing that we can do for ourselves. And furthermore, in teaching our children, I can't just give them principles, I can't just talk about, like, theoretically, what is sleep or why is nutrition important. No, I literally have to sit them down in a high chair and say, say, ah. <laughs> so that they have to, like, open their mouths and get the idea of, oh, this is food, and I chew it, and then I swallow, I don't spit it out. Like, we do all these things to, like, teach our kids basic stuff. Basic stuff. And, and it can't just be theoretical. We have to teach them practically, concretely. This is how you do it. But the reality is, is that I think that that doesn't really change when you become adults. I mean, yeah, you get better at the whole, like, hopefully eating and sleeping and dressing yourself thing. You all look very nice on Sunday morning, by the way. <laughs> but but there's, there's a, there comes a point when you're learning something as an adult where theory just isn't enough. Where simply be, being given the principle is, is not quite what's required. What you really need is you need someone who can show you how to do it. The theory is great, but until that theory is, is demonstrated and put into practice, you never really know quite how to live it out. You never know how to put those theories into practice. And that's why I think Romans chapter 12 is so important because it's here that Paul kind of puts some, some meat on the bones of what does it really mean to live a gospel-saturated life? He's been talking a lot about uh, receiving the grace of God and living in light of the Spirit. But what does that practically look like? And that's the reason Romans chapter 12 is so important. It begins with this really important trigger word, therefore. 
Whenever Paul says therefore in this letter, it means that he's making a major transition. He's saying, okay, in light of everything that I've been saying, pay attention to this. And here what he's talking about, what the therefore is there for, is to help us understand what does it look like to lead a gospel-saturated life, to live a gospel-saturated life. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Romans chapter 12. And if you're using the Pew, uh, Pew Bible, we're on page 947. Page 947 in the Pew Bible. Now, I've said this every week. I will keep saying it. If you are a guest and you don't have your own Bible, take the Pew Bible. We would love for you to have that. That is our gift to you. And the reason why we want you to have it is because we want you studying this text with us. We want you studying it for yourself. Highlighting and underlining stuff. Writing notes in the margins. So let that be our gift to you. But again, Romans chapter 12, we're on uh, page 947 in the Pew Bible. Paul is addressing this big question. What does it mean to live a, a gospel-saturated life? And he opens with these words, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, this opening passage, he says, in light of everything that I've said about God's mercies, in light of everything that I've said about our need for salvation and how God generously and graciously gives it to us through Jesus, in light of all that I've said about the importance of, of walking with the Spirit, I urge you now, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says the response of the human person to the grace and mercy of God is to offer our lives back to him. And what I find so interesting is, is the, the specific words that Paul is using when he's highlighting this. Because you see here in, in verses 1 and 2, this is kind of the principle. Okay, this is the key to the rest of chapter 12. And as he's talking about the principle of offering your life as a living sacrifice, he says that this is your spiritual worship. But what's really fascinating about those last two words in verse 1 is how different translations will translate them. Because here in the ESV it says spiritual worship. Others will say that this is your spiritual service. Others will say that this is your reasonable worship. And so the question is, what what is going on here? What is Paul actually saying? And so if we look a little closer at those last two words, the, tain, uh, the words are tain logikain latreon. Okay, it's just like, everybody's like, I have no idea what that means in Greek. That's okay. That's why I'm here. I'm going to try and explain that to you. This word that we translate spiritual, when it says your spiritual worship, is this word logikain. It's the word from which we get our term logic. He's actually saying, in light of everything that God has done for you, the only logical response of the human being is to offer their lives back to him. That when you stop and you consider who God is, what he has done, the evidence for his existence, the boundless, immeasurable mercies and grace that he's given you, the only rational, logical response is to offer your life back to him as a living sacrifice. It's this word for logic. I mean, think Mr. Spock. Okay, it's only logical, Captain. All right? That's essentially what he's saying here. Now, people will say, so then why do we translate it spiritual? Spiritual worship or spiritual service. 
is because of the fact that this word was often used in religious contexts. Because in Paul's world, the rational and the spiritual were not two separate things. They were one and the same thing. That in light of what God has done for you, the only response is a wholehearted, mind-body-soul response of giving my life back to him as a living sacrifice. And this word for worship that some people often translate service, again, in, in Paul's day, worship and service went hand in hand. That your life is meant to be an act of worship. And that that is the only rational, reasonable response to all that God has done for you. In light of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Likewise, he goes on to encourage them in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Offer your life back. And, and when you offer your life back, don't let it be like you're just going with the flow, like you're just going downstream. Rather, this life that we are to offer back to God is supposed to be something truly inspiring, supposed to be something that, that goes against the stream. Offer your life back to him. And don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. What I find interesting about this call to, to not be conformed, to, to live a new life, to live a life in light of God's mercies, is how that happens. See, one of the things that, that, was, that I found really interesting is this past week, uh, I saw an interview with Dr. Lori Santos of Yale University. She's a doctor of psychology, and she teaches a class called Psychology and the Good Life. Now, this is the most well-attended class at Yale University. That every semester she offers it, she does so in a bigger and bigger lecture hall. That there is a wait list that continues to grow to get into this class because what she's talking about in that class is how do I change my life and live my life in a way that brings joy and happiness. College students are paying tuition money to get answers to that question. And they pack this class out because they are genuinely looking for an answer. How do I live a, the good life? But what's interesting is what she says is involved. When she sat down with the interviewer to talk about this class and why students are so interested, the interviewer asked her, they said, so, so what, what do you teach students to help them understand what the good life is and begin pursuing it? And she said, well, the first thing that you have to help your students to know is that oftentimes our minds lie to us. Our minds lie to us specifically about what we think will actually make us happy. And this is part of the reason why people will pursue new jobs, move to new communities, buy new clothes, try out new diets, try, try to find new hobbies, and yet still at the end of it all are unhappy. They have no joy in their life because they think that those external things are actually going to satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. And so then the interview said, okay, so, so then what do you teach them? She said, quite simply, we teach them how to rewire their brain. We teach them how to be happy in every single circumstance by rewiring their brain. I find that's interesting that a Yale psychologist would say that because when Paul talks about being, uh, don't, not being conformed to this world, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So you could go to Yale and pay lots of tuition dollars, or you could read Romans 12. That's basically what I'm saying. 
Because 2,000 years ago, Paul understood. He understood that if you want to live a life of meaning and purpose, it has to come from transformation within. That your life needs to be transformed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, by testing all those other neat uh, ideas out there, you might be able to discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says to live a gospel-saturated life, you must be tr- uh, not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what specifically has to be transformed? If we're to put that principle into practice, practically what does that look like? What does a transformed mind mean? How does a transformed mind think? And the answer that Paul gives in the rest of this chapter is he says, quite simply, someone with a transformed mind, first and foremost, is humble in how they regard themselves and loving in how they regard God and others. To have a transformed mind is to be humble in how you view yourself and loving in how you view God and others. Let's dive in and take a closer look. Verses 3 to 8. He begins by talking about the importance of being humble in regard to oneself. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. You see, the problem is, is that too often when we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves a little too highly. We think about ourselves a little too much. That when things are going poorly, it's not my fault, it's everybody else's fault. And when things are going well, it's totally my fault because I'm awesome. (laughs) That's basically the way we think. That we consider ourselves first and foremost uh, above all things. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I'm telling you, I say to everyone, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. He's saying, don't get high on yourselves. But think with sober judgment about who you are. He says that's really the key to humility is thinking with sober judgment about who you are and the gifts that you have. You see, we often get humility wrong. We think that humility means humiliation. And that to be humble, I just have to uh, think less about myself. Think of myself like, like I'm really not that great. To basically put ourselves down, right? So someone comes to you and says, hey, I think you could be a small group leader. And you're like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. No way, absolutely not. You know, I don't want to put myself on a pedestal. You know, and that, that's humility. But that's not what Paul says here. He says that's actually not true humility, not at all. In fact, I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, true humility is not thinking uh, less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And what Paul says here is he says, and the way to true humility is by using the gifts God has given you in the service of other people. Because he goes on and he says, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
If prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see, what Paul is saying is he's saying true humility involves sober self-assessment that then bears fruit in service to other people. Sober self-assessment that bears fruit in service to other people. That it's not that I deny that I have gifts, but rather I say, no, I know the gifts that I have, and I know how God has called me to use them for other people's benefits, not mine. For the benefit of other people that they might grow, not mine. For the benefit of the body so that it might grow, not so that I might be built up. He says that is true humility. Sober self-assessment that bears fruit in service to other people. I remember when this was kind of driven home for me, I was considering whether or not I should be a pastor and I was having lots of conversations with different people about it. And one of the things that made it hard for me to say yes to being a pastor is actually doing what I'm doing right now. You see, I was worried that by getting up on a stage, I would be exalting myself. And I remember sitting down with a very wise mentor of mine, a guy by the name of Dan Shaw. And we sat down and I said, you know, Dan, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in being a pastor. I think I'd be a good pastor, but I think that that kind of sounds a little bit arrogant. And I don't want to be prideful or anything like that. And Dan looked at me and he said, Nick, I have watched you preach. And you are a very, very gifted communicator. God has given you those gifts for a reason. And so your duty to him and to other people is to stand up there and to preach his word. Nothing more, nothing less. But he went on and he said, and, and you by sitting here obsessing, thinking that it's going to make you look prideful, you're still thinking about you. You're still thinking about you. Think about the ones that God has called you to serve. And for their sake and in faithfulness to God's word, you get up there and you say what the text says. And that was it. That is true humility, saying, what are the gifts God has given me? How might I use them to serve other people? Not for my own glory, not for my own exaltation, but for their betterment, for their growth, for their health, that they might indeed come to know God and follow him with all that they have. See, the trick, the, the first thing to know and being transformed by the renewal of your mind is to think about yourself with humility. But then the second thing that it involves is think, regarding other, God and others with love. Regarding God and others with love. That's really what verses 9 to the end of this chapter are all about. Paul goes on, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What I love about these verses is how intertwined it is loving God and loving others. That there's actually not kind of like a linear love God first and then love other people progression in Paul's thinking. He's bouncing back and forth all the time between loving God and loving other people. He says you should love God. Love God, be fervent in the Spirit, serve the Lord, be constant in prayer. But that's all wrapped up and intertwined with this idea of loving one another with brotherly affection. 
And considering how you can outdo one another in showing honor, contributing to the needs of the saints, and seeking to show hospitality. You see, what Paul is basically saying here is he's saying, you can't love God without loving people. And you can't truly love people without loving God. They go hand in hand. It's what Jesus himself said when he was asked, what's the most important commandment? He basically said, well, there's kind of two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. They go together. They are bound up with one another. And Paul right here is saying, that is how you should live your life. Do you wake up in the morning longing to spend time with your God? Saying, I want to spend time in your word. I want to pray to you. I want to hear from you. I want to get to know you and walk with you. I actually remember uh, listening to an interview with Danzel Washington. He says, uh, they, they were asking him, so like, what, what are your tips for success? He says, you want to know one of my tips for success is, is I put my slippers under the bed before I go to bed at night. And they said, why? And he's like, because that ensures that every single morning I spend my morning on my knees in prayer. I get down on my knees and I thank God for my day. I ask him to guide me and I take a few moments of delight in prayer and in worship. Do we delight in spending time with our God? Are we constant in prayer, fervent in spirit? But then he very quickly moves to showing brotherly affection for other people. I love this term, brotherly affection. I think that this is an awesome way to put it. Because what he's saying is he's saying your relationships within the church are supposed to be the relationships between siblings. Okay, now anyone who's had a sibling knows that that is not always an easy kind of relationship, right? I still have scars in my hands from my younger brother like clawing the snot out of my knuckles in the back seat of the car on long car trips as we were fighting, 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 fighting. You see, being siblings doesn't mean that you're never going to have a disagreement. It doesn't mean that you're never going to fight. Of course you're going to fight. It's what siblings do. But what makes siblings siblings is that they also then learn to work it out. You know, my brother and I were sitting in the back, you know, fighting each other. Finally, at some point, it's just like, all right, look, dude, I'm bleeding. You're crying. This isn't working. We got we to gotta sort this out. We got to figure this out. And what he's saying is he's saying your relationships within the church are supposed to be that way too. That when you have a fight or a disagreement, you don't just up and leave and sweep it under the rug and go to a new congregation and hope the other one figures it out. You approach those with whom you have a disagreement and you say, hey, look, when you did this, that hurt. And I want us to figure this out. That when you're fighting with one another, rather than just throwing up your hands and saying, good riddance, I'm moving on, what we do is we press in, we lean in and we say, look, both of us are hurting. How can we solve this together? How can I, in a spirit of brotherly love and affection, Work together with you so that we both might move forward together as a family. He's saying that is what it means to be in the family of God. You love each other with a brotherly kind of affection. But more than that, you find ways of serving, showing that love in concrete, tangible action for one another. It's why he says contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute, financially contributing, but also contributing to their needs. When you hear of a need, you step up and say, how can I help? That when someone around you and your family is hurting, you say, I'm going to pour out all the treasures that I have, my time, treasure, and talents, so that I might contribute to their needs, to their benefit and their growth. 
that I would show hospitality, opening my life to them, welcoming them in, letting them know that they are deeply and radically loved. But he doesn't stop there. He also talks about basically showing dignity to all. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. What he's saying is he's saying it is our job and our responsibility to give dignity to everyone. Regardless of their station in life, their racial or cultural background, their socioeconomic status, their, uh, their different abilities. He actually says this is the one thing that Christians can compete with each other in. He says outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor to every single person that you meet. Last but not least, he says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He says we go out of our way to resolve our conflicts. That we fight for peace. That when something is not right, we don't settle for superficial niceties. We dig it up and we say, hey, this is a problem, but let's work on it together. So that together these wounds can be healed and we can move forward. Paul's saying, this is what brotherly affection looks like. This is what life in the family of God is supposed to be all about. Love for God and love for one another. It's what a renewed mind sets its mind on. In regard to God and others, we love them. But what's even more astounding is Paul doesn't stop there. He says that this even applies to our enemies. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is a radical calling for our world. It's radical because of just how challenging it really is. To bless those who persecute you. To love those who are your enemies. I think oftentimes what happens is we as Christians, we will read verses 14 to 21 and we'll insert the word forgive. Forgive those who persecute you. And we say, yeah, this person, this is the person's hurt me. This is my enemy. So I forgive them and, and hopefully they, they learn what they did wrong. And then we just kind of move on. Now, let's keep in mind right here, Paul is certainly not talking about anything less than forgiveness. Okay, forgiveness is a powerful thing. In fact, Archbishop Desmond Tutu says, forgiveness says you are given another chance to make a new beginning. But let's make no mistake, not once in here does Paul say forgive. What does he say? He says, bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head, but don't be overcome by evil, rather overcome evil with good. He's saying that when we encounter our enemies, our job is to go out of our way to bless them, to work actively for their good, to give them what they need so that they might be provided for. It's a radical calling. One of the most beautiful examples that I saw of this was when I heard the story of Christian Piccolini. Christian was recruited into the white supremacist movement when he was 14 years old. He didn't come from a bad household, by the way. It's just that his parents were really, really busy and he was looking for a place to belong. And the people who made him feel welcome were, were the neo-Nazis in his community. He was recruited into their community and he went on to actually found one of the most violent neo-Nazi gangs in the country. 
He was actually kicked out of high school twice, the second time in handcuffs. He was in and out of jail, in and out of jail for things like assault, illegally owning a firearm, disturbing the peace, theft. Thrown into jail as a young man, he eventually was in and out of jail so much he kind of hit rock bottom. That eventually it got so bad that his, that his family kind of gave up on him. He ended up losing his family. He ended up not being able to get a job. He ended up being on the outs in his community. And eventually he kind of came to the end of himself. He said, at one point it got so bad that I remember lying there in bed wishing that I would never wake up again. He wanted out. But he didn't know how. Eventually, a friend, of him, uh, a friend of his came to him and said, you know, Christian, I'm worried about you. I'm worried that you're going to kill yourself. And so I, I'd like to offer you a, a chance to apply for a job. See, his friend worked for a little startup called IBM and was inviting Christian to repair computers. And so Christian, against all the odds and with his massive criminal record, applied for the job, and by the grace of God, he got the job. He got a job repairing computers in high schools. But here's where the story gets really interesting. Do you want to know which high school he was first assigned to? It was the one that he was kicked out of twice. He remembers walking through those doors with his, you know, tools and stuff like that, just keeping his, like, looking at the floor. He's just like so afraid that somebody, one of the teachers or the administrators would recognize him. He said, I'm just going to get in, I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to leave. He was in the, he was in the commu computer lab working on computers when who should walk by but Johnny Holmes. Johnny Holmes was the black security guard of his high school. This is the security guard that he got into a fist fight with. This is the security guard who led him out of that high school in handcuffs. He says, I, I, I froze. I just looked at the floor and prayed he didn't recognize me. And sure enough, Johnny walked right past Christian, headed out to the parking lot. He's like, but then I got this, this feeling like I, I have to say something. So, so I got up and I did the dumbest thing imaginable. I followed Johnny into the parking lot. I followed him up to his car and as he's fumbling with his keys, I tap him on the shoulder. He's like, I'm amazed that I did not get knocked out in that moment. He turned around and he looked at me and he took a step back because he suddenly recognized me. And all I could say in that moment were the only words that I could manage to get out of my mouth and that was, I'm sorry. But then the most amazing thing happened. Johnny with his massive arms reached out and embraced Christian. He said, I forgive you. But he didn't stop at forgiveness. Because what he did next is truly amazing. He said, but more than that, Christian, do you want to know what my prayer for you is? Is that you would learn to forgive yourself. That you would learn to forgive yourself. Because I know, I know, son, that you've got a story to tell. And it's a story that other people need to hear. And if you here have any encouragement for me, it's that you would spend the rest of your life telling that story. And guess what Christian does now? He goes around the country and around the world talking about how to set young people free from hate groups. He's dedicated his life to that entire mission of getting them out of these horrible communities and into places where they can find love and acceptance. And one of the things that Christian says he looks for, he says, one of the things that I look for anytime I sit down with a neo-Nazi is I look for potholes. See, everybody has potholes in their life. Something happened that knocked them off course, that set them off in a wrong direction. And it's my job to fill those potholes with empathy and compassion. 
to fill those potholes with empathy and compassion because I realize that that person sitting across from me, he is no different. Just another human being looking for a place to belong. He said, my challenge and the mission in my life is to encourage you all to go out into the world and to find someone that you think least deserves your compassion and to give it to them unreservedly because they are the ones who need it the most. To fill up those potholes with empathy and compassion. I feel like Christian could be quoting straight from Romans chapter 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because you see, when we go out into the world and we give grace and mercy and love to those who have wronged us, we are becoming an embodiment of the gospel. Because the reality is, is that's exactly what God did with us. That when we had turned our backs on him, spit on him, betrayed him, and crucified him, he from the cross looked down and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That he came into a world filled with enemies, a world that was one big pothole, and he filled it up with his compassion and his love. That when we turned our backs on him, he ran and he embraced us and called us his children. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, if that good news of Jesus Christ has gone deep, then that is good news that you will share with those all around you. That you will go into the broken places of this world. You will even go to your enemies and you will pour out compassion upon them. So that in so doing, they might come to know the love of Jesus Christ. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what it means to live a gospel-saturated life. To be humble in how we regard ourselves. To be loving in how we regard God and others. And to give this world a little taste of what it means to live by the grace of Jesus Christ. In all that we say and all that we do. That is our calling. That is our mission. That's what it means to help people look, live, and love more like Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus that we say, Amen.